For any Shuker Haynes, please now reveal the name of the school that is going to become a smartphone-free campus in September. Buxton School in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Buxton, a small boarding school in the Berkshire Mountains, is taking a bold leap, one that I believe many of us parents wish we could take with our children, to turn in our smartphones, to break the addiction, to create space and time for the opportunities that matter most. Buxton is meant to be a place that fosters conversation, that encourages bridge building, that helps students see and understand all that they are capable of. But smartphones and the social media apps they so brilliantly and relentlessly beam into our students' lives are imperiling what Buxton does and who we are. The Buxton School will still have Wi-Fi and laptops and tablets and dumb phones that can only call or text, but nobody will have smartphones, not the students, not the teachers, not the administrators. There is a mental health crisis among young people, and we have seen from intense lived experience that smartphones in particular are damaging our students. What we are trying to interrupt is the compelling immediacy of the respond now culture that smartphones not just enable, but essentially demand. Joining me on this Wavemaker conversation to discuss the tipping point that led to the decision to say no to smartphones is Buxton's Director Emeritus, Franny Shuker Haynes. I guess you and I first got to know each other when my oldest child applied to Buxton and you were the head of the school. And Mm -hmm. you were the one that the potential students interviewed with. And I believe I remember you telling us that at the end of that interview, our child said to you, put in a good word for me. (laughs) Yeah, I was the associate director of the school for about 10 years and then director of the school for about five. And now I'm director emeritus, kind of step sideways and I'm focusing mainly on external affairs. But yeah, I used to interview almost every kid that came into the school, and it was a great pleasure, actually, to have this kind of very quick, deep dive into a family and to getting to know a kid and getting to see if I felt like a student would be right for us and if we would be right for them. And certainly that was the case uh, with Lee. So, you know, it worked out well. (laughs) So what does that mean, first of all, keeping Buxton Buxton, just to give people a sense of this place? So Buxton was founded in 1928 as part of the progressive movement in education. And there are many ways to define what that was. But I would say one of the pillars of of progressive education is that the lived experience of students is the most powerful and potent teaching tool we have. That people learn by doing, that people learn from their environment, that people grow up to be full and participatory citizens by living a life as children that allows them to acquire those skills. So we are a school that is intentionally small so that students are living with each other in a way that allows and in some ways forces them to get to know each other well, to make compromise when necessary to collaborate uh, in ways both in terms of, you know, artistic collaboration, but also in 
terms of keeping the campus well taken care of. Our students are involved in all aspects of caretaking of the school, from mowing lawns to chopping wood to helping to run their dorms to bringing problems to the faculty to helping solve problems themselves. So that is the essence of what Buxton is. We sometimes call it an intentional community. And the intention is to help young people grow up well and to help young people start to feel their power and their effect. In a small environment where their power and effect are quite uh, immediate and obvious, and then they will move on to bigger and bigger environments, but will take those skills with them. And that will allow them to have power and effect in larger and larger spheres. So um, what we began to see, you know, every step of technology changes something, right? And we were able to make, fold that into our lives. You know, when I first came to Buxton, there weren't even cell phones. So in 25 years, if you think about that, there was like one cell tower in the area and it didn't work very well and nobody had them. Um, and we felt like we could make it work with almost every technological advance until the smartphone. And that's when we started to see, and not immediately, but what we started to see was the, the students who had truly grown up from maybe age 10 on with this as this major part of their everyday lives. And I mean, their every minute lives, you know, they were struggling, increasingly struggling with the demands that a place at Buxton was put up, putting on them, right? So they were struggling to uh, compromise, to be with each other in real time and space, to handle um, sort of the normal frictions of in-person life. And increasingly we're, were using the smartphone as a way to interact with each other, even though they were here together, right? So that felt, first of all, like, mm, that's not what we're here to do. And also increasingly their habits that social media ingrains in people. And those habits run directly counter to the habits Buxton is designed to foster. So we're a community that's meant to help students see the nuance in things, to complicate issues so they are no longer so black and white, but become the shades of gray that all issues truly are, right? We're here to help, uh, it's a very diverse student body and to help students see where they have points of um, connection and understanding and can and can find each other in spite of what are in some cases superficial differences, in some cases profound. What social media asks of people is to judge instantly and harshly, to um, respond right now to whatever, anything, and to respond in terms that are inflammatory enough that it will cause other people to respond. So it was making it harder and harder for us to lean into nuance. And the other thing is that the immediacy of information was also having a detrimental effect on students. And this is what some of the most recent articles about this mental health crisis among kids, there are many culprits that are named, but one of them that isn't directly because of the smartphone, the social media part of it, but is related to it is that this drip, drip, drip of bad news that kids are getting all day long um, is also terrible for their mental health. So they're in a community that they can actually affect, but instead what they're getting through their smartphone is news and information about communities that are so far away or so 
that they have no power or effect over. And it's debilitating. I mean, it's true for us too, as adults, uh, you know, that, that you can only take so much of this sort of terrible news that you're powerless to affect. So for all those reasons, over time, we ha- and we've been circling around this issue for a long time, uh, we finally decided, you know what, we've got we've to preserve what we do and what we have. And it's clear to us that this particular tool is hurting, hurting our project. And you know, you shared some some great recent articles, and a lot of a lot has been written on on the mental health crisis among teenagers. Uh, but you shared with me a, a, a piece from the Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, just recently, in a series that the New York Times is doing, where some yeah. families who have had these mental health crises with their kids have really opened up, including the kids, and said, "You know, we're an open book. See where we fit into the pattern." And this word loneliness keeps coming up, and I know life at Buxton well enough, having been a Buxton parent, to know that loneliness is one thing I was not concerned about when I sent my child there because there is so much interaction. You alluded to it, you know, the the community of students and teachers and and, mm-hmm. you know, and faculty mm-hmm. and, and administrators are all responsible for keeping that place maintained mm-hmm. together collaboratively. But I'm just curious, is is having the phone there in your hand constantly and constantly pinging, was that, in, was that playing into a sense of loneliness at all? Or is that one area where, no, you had that covered? That, that wasn't a problem. Well, I, you know, I don't know if loneliness is exactly the word I would use, but what I would say is that the student's and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to sound like I'm condescending to them or finger wagging at them or tis tisking them. It's not their fault. They're not bad. They're great. But I think that making personal connections in person has become increasingly hard for these kids, particularly because of COVID. So I think these trends were already happening. We were already seeing it. And then when the pandemic struck and all these kids were stuck at home for at least a year and a half, most of them, they really lost out on some crucial skills. And so there's this dynamic, which is that people are having a harder time just being in person with each other. And then when they are having a hard time, they kind of escape to, and again, that might be the wrong word or kind of take to the, to the screen and post about it to either other people here at the school that they could just be talking to in real life or other folks out in the world. And then, you know, having sort of strange, um, you know, fights with each other mediated through a screen instead of just finding each other and working it out. That was sort of, that's the dynamic. So is loneliness exactly the right word? No, but there's this sense of each student being siloed in their social media reality to some extent. And then there's, there's another issue, which, which it sort of not occurred to me, but Peter Beck, you're one of my kids, English teachers at Buxton mm-hmm. and now director of the school. He, he was saying it's, 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 it's not that the social media on the phone is evil. It's what other things they could be doing with their time. And he specifically mentioned this issue, which has been discussed in, in, in adolescent psychology circles of, you know, kids today may have a harder time 
being bored or not, actually not as much opportunity to be bored. And the wonderful things, and you read about this in creative circles all the time, what boredom can do, because when you have to sit with that boredom and be uncomfortable with it, sometimes you get very imaginative. So I'm curious what your take is on, on boredom and how at Buxton your students do find alternatives to compensate for that boredom and opportunities created by boredom. So I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, literally, I think 15 or 20 years ago, I coined a term in a conversation I was having with students at Buxton, Buxton, which was the luxury of boredom, that Buxton gives you the luxury of boredom, right? And we were talking about exactly that issue. And this is when, you know, the alternative was kids, you know, like renting a video and watching a video on the weekend, right? And even so, we were trying to help young people understand how valuable that time is. You know, once you're an adult and all your hours are spoken for, uh, don't you wish you could have that back? You know, this this time and opportunity and this great, beautiful campus and all the facilities to just make cool things happen, right? So I think I think all of us have gotten less tolerant. Uh, of boredom. I, I, you know, when, when I'm standing in a line somewhere, virtually every person in that line, right, has a phone out and is doing something to, to while away uh, those minutes and myself included. Um, So yes, I think there's a couple of problems. I think that the students, yes, are spending time doing this social media stuff that is time better spent making things up, you know, taking some risks, trying something new, doing a collaborative art project or deciding to set, you know, we used to have kids who set up a coffee house on Saturday night. And what that really meant was like, they'd gather somewhere and read poetry to each other or kids forming bands together or uh, kids deciding to, we went through a period of people were doing a lot of graffiti art. So they'd be doing it. We would direct them towards a surface that was okay to do it on. uh, And they would collaborate on a, a mural or a project. And so that's the kind of thing we would love to see more of. And it's the kind of thing that's always, it's always hard for everyone to start nothing from scratch, right? But you don't get good at it unless you're practicing doing it. Um, And I think that fewer and fewer young people have the opportunity to just make something up from whole cloth. And the other thing that they have at Buxton that's unusual is they have all these faculty around who are excited to do that with them. Um, so again, that is one of the things that we're hoping to reclaim a little of with this, uh, smartphone ban. And we're also just hoping to reclaim the sense that, um, a kind of healthy hanging out, you know, that just hanging out with other people, that is a form of collaboration. That's a form of creativity, even that's, that's undervalued. It's such a simple term. And mm-hmm. it's and the idea of we want to send our kids to a school where not only is it academically excellent with inspired teachers and you know where they're safe, but just the ability to hang out mm-hmm. without screens in front of their faces. And I say they're our faces as well. Right. Because we've right. also our ability has been compromised. Um what was the tipping point? If you can bring me inside the room, I'm curious yeah. to know, because it sounds like from your letter, this is something 
that had come up a lot. You've been wrestling with it as, as, as a, a team of administrators and faculty and even students. What was that tipping point that said, we're going to start this, this coming September 2022, no more smartphones for anybody, faculty, administrators, students? So again, this is an idea, as I've said, that we've been circling around for a while, but this past fall, and again, we're dealing with a generation that has truly been through a trauma. I do think the pandemic is a trauma. And I think that young people have suffered, young, I, I think I would argue that adolescents in particular have suffered more than younger kids or older kids, because this is the stage of your life where you're really learning how to be in the world with other people without necessarily being, you know, your parent's child or, you know, under somebody else's um, sort of extreme protection. Um, And what we were seeing was increased conflict among students, between students, and that conflict was happening through the phone. So the way that we would find out as a faculty that there was some conflict going on between students was that somebody would share a a screenshot. And this was happening repeatedly. So somebody on the faculty gets sent a screenshot and said, this person is doing, saying these terrible things, you know, you got to do something about it. And it happened, it happened so often that there really was a morning that um, I saw, I got a message about one of these and I picked up my phone, the phone part, and I called Peter Beck and I said, we got to do it. We've got to do it. And he said, oh, my God, I was having that exact same conversation with Lizzie. So Timothy and I, my husband and I were like, we got to do something here. And they in their household were saying the same thing. And we called each other. So, again, this feels punitive. And I want to be clear that that's not the impulse here. It's not because these kids are bad and they're being bad online. It's that the habits that this kind of social media, social media mediated um, group life are hurting them and they're hurting us. Uh, So that was the tipping point. This is so applicable to everyone's life. Just that concept. Mm -hmm. When you have bad habits, how do you change them? And I have to say that, you know, I've, I've, as, as I've mentioned to you and to Peter Beck, as soon as I got that email that you were going smartphone free, I got obsessed. I started trying the two main dumb phones, as they call them, without internet right. connectivity to try to compare them. And each has their own strengths and weaknesses, but they are both designed to specifically be used minimally because they you can make a call, you can text, but you're not really going to get screenshots. There's no social media on them whatsoever. And when our our youngest child, who's now 18, saw me experimenting with those, they said, what's that? And I told them, and I told them about Buxton's policy. They said, can I get one of those phones? I said, oh, are you interested? Why? And they said, because, and, and I hear this is the same thing at Buxton. Kids are, students are not using these phones in class. It's not distracting them from the academic work in class. It's all the other time. And that's what my daughter told me. She said, you know, I feel like I'm checking it too often when I'm not in class. I said, well, how would you feel if the school imposed that policy? 
and faculty included, no smartphones. She said, no, I'd rather that I don't want. Why? It's that sense of agency. Mm-hmm. I don't want the administration dictating what I could do, but I, I know what healthy habits are and I would like the opportunity to change them. Now, to me, it's like, unless, unless it's a level playing field and everybody's playing by the same rules, that's an awfully tall order, which is what the Buxton opportunity, I think, really presents. That's an excellent point. And in fact, I was having a conversation on our revisit day. So these are families that were making a final decision about whether or not to enroll in Buxton and um, new families. And I, we were asking them what they thought. And more than one family said that part of the reason they liked it and want their student to come, and even their student feels this way, is that they feel that with even with all the best intentions, they can't do it. They can't legislate it. They can't. They've sort of lost the the fight. Um, And they do need this imposition of another power that's saying you're not going to do it. And it needs to be exactly what you're saying, the level playing field. So when you're at a day school and everybody's got it and you're the one person who's not on whatever this, you know, doing the Instagram or uh, whatever, then you are truly um, you're missing out. You're not part of the the gang, which is very important at this age. But at Buxton, we have the opportunity. No one's doing it. So no one's being left out of anything in particular that's happening here. Obviously, I know the kids are anxious about what they're going to miss in terms of their home communities. But in terms of the community that they're in at Buxton, they will all, none of them are going to be missing out on something that's happening somewhere on somebody's social media. They're all doing the same thing together. And this is what's interesting to me because in terms of what they're missing out back in the hometowns where they came from in those communities and their friends, it sounds like because you've got Wi-Fi, you've got internet, you've got computers, you've got tablets, you've got everything else, what they will be missing uh, out on is learning about what's happening immediately. Exactly. And, and I, it's not, I, you already shaped my insight just by what you had told me as the immediacy of it. You would use the word, yes, you said kids are judging each other instantly, harshly, and right now. Mm-hmm. And so that sense of right now, and by the way, coming from the network news business where, you know, I was there during the transition. It's sort of a similar kind of thing from, mm-hmm. you know, one of my you know earlier jobs was writing for the evening news with ABC World News Tonight with Peter Jennings when those evening news programs were the main form of news summary that you would get. Yeah. And then CNN came up and I actually moved to CNN and then it was 24-7 and then it was everything happened to be right now, had to be right now. And if it wasn't, it was almost considered old news. And we were scared we were going to lose people because people would have a fear of missing out, which is in a way similar to what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I remember so well when this transition happened between like the nightly news and the 24-hour news cycle. And there, one of the critiques at the time was that you almost are compelled to make things into news just so you can keep, you know, filling filling those time slots. And I would say um, that's kind of a similar, a similar issue here in that um, 
people feel compelled to be on them all the time because they're there, but but there's no real reason to. And I'll give you an example. When I first came to Bucks, as I said, there weren't even cell phones. There were pay phones and there were maybe four pay phones or five pay phones on campus that kids could use to call home. So it meant that if you were going to connect with your parents, you had to wait until usually after bed check, you had to wait till somebody else had finished their endless call with their mom or their teary phone call with the boyfriend at home they're breaking up with or whatever. And so by the time you got on the phone with your parents, you had some perspective on your day, right? So maybe at two that afternoon, you'd had a lonely moment and had been feeling really lousy, but at five, you'd had a great moment and really connected with somebody that was wonderful. And then that night you had a great chorus rehearsal and then maybe you had some hard math problems, but by the time you talked to them, you had that kind of perspective on your day. And I remember when we first started having even cell phones, talking to parents on opening day about like, just remember that, your kids are going to call you when they're lonely and bored. They're not going to call you when they're having a great time, right? So back in the day when you could only talk to your parents a couple times a week at night, you you had more perspective. They got more perspective. Now, once we have just regular cell phones, even I had to warn parents, you're not going to get the whole picture. You're just going to get your kids when they are bored and lonely, right? So call us and find out from us how they're doing the rest of the time that you can't see them. And I think this the smartphone is that on steroids, right? That kids are reaching out to everybody all the time, connecting to everybody all the time. And there's no perspective. There's no time for perspective. So you are, but with this policy, it's incredible. I mean, you really are building in the ability to pause. Yes. And that's exactly the way I've put it to some people. We want to build in like a delay between the reaction and the posting of the reaction. So if you have to wait long enough to just get back to your room and open your laptop and log on to Instagram that way, that might be just enough time to just slow things down and calm things down. I want to tell you one other story, if that's okay, that has bearing on this. Um, you know, the school goes on a trip every year. So we tend to go to a North American city that we can take a bus to, but every now and then we go somewhere uh, farther away. And I think actually the year before Lee came, we went to Nicaragua and, um, that the place we were staying in Nicaragua was a, a religious retreat center that had no Wi-Fi, no cell phone, nothing. So the kids were there for a week with none of that. And they ended up loving it, loving it. So they come back from the trip. They're all full of stories and full of excitement about everything they learned on the trip. But all of them talked about one of the things they liked the most was that they were just hanging out, playing cards, playing the guitar, playing, you know, mafia, all, you know, just playing games with each other in their spare time. And a bunch of kids made this huge effort to try to continue that when they got back, you know, making announcements and, you know, we're going to get together and play cards tonight at evening snack time. We're going to do this or that. And they just couldn't sustain it. It had to be imposed for it to work, you know. Um, but I think about that all the time. And that was even before everybody had a smartphone. That was a lot of the kids still just had you know, dumb phones at that point. And that was roughly, if I remember the year, that would have been 2015, 16, around yeah. there. Yep. You know, and I guess now, you know, there's, as you've alluded to, there's no single cause 
for the mental health crisis that everybody is recognizing now among our kids. But this is clearly, this is going to free up a significant amount of time to get in touch with themselves, to you know, find passions. And, and most importantly, you know, I know from the Buxton mentality is to create those deeper connections, you know, and collaborations. Um, so, so how do you envision now, like looking into September, do you have like a dream of vision real in your head about, you know, how different it's going to be? Or is it too subtle and nuanced to even think about that at this point? Well, I have my sort of my dream of how it's going to be, right? And then I have more realistic. Start with the dream because the dreams can shape the reality. Right, right. And part of it, I uh, just so you know, one of my other um, many jobs is that I've also worked for many years at a theater camp that does not allow phones. So I have for years spent my summers with young people who don't have their phones all summer. So I know, and also because of my early years at Buxton, I sort of know what's possible when kids have a lot of time, energy, passion and intention, right? So my hope and dream is that there will, that students will, out of necessity or boredom, um, involve themselves more in more of the activities at Buxton. That's always been a hallmark of the, of the school, is that the activities are just as important as the classes, that it's, it's important to also be in chorus and also play soccer and also, uh, you know, be a participant in, in every aspect of the school. And again, we've been fighting more of an uphill battle with that in the last few years. So I am hoping that more students will feel compelled to do more extracurricular activities. That is a dream. Uh, another dream is that students will get together and make their own fun, right? So just as I was talking about these kids playing cards in Nicaragua, I hope to see a renaissance of that, you know, of kids just getting together and making things happen. And there's already some of that. There are the kids who play D&D and the kids who do, you know, certain other kind of role-playing games like that. But to see more of that going on, I'd love to see more of the spontaneous, um, wild and woolly creativity that you know, has happened over my time at Buxton, kids playing weird music together and or having just jam sessions on the back porch of the main house or making art together. And then my other really um, potent hope and dream is that students will, um, not that they're not talking to each other now, but that the talking to each other will really be seen as the important work of their lives at this age or, or part of it. Um, because I think that that skill and that focus of like, okay, we're going to talk together. We're going to make it work. I, for years, have had a running joke that I, that Buxton runs on conversation because people ask me, oh, what do you do for discipline? And what do you do for this? And I was like, well, we talk about it and we talk about it some more and we talk about it again. And, you know, it's a combination of boring students into submission, but also it's because we really believe in the power of communication. But I just want to see a renaissance of that communication happening in real time and space, face to face in this beautiful setting. So that's my dream. And it is a beautiful setting. It's more than 100 acres. Mm -hmm. In the Berkshire Mountains. In the Berkshire yeah. Mountains, in a gorgeous part of the country, I'm thinking because there's so there's so much you've covered. Um, 
the luxury of boredom is echoing in my head. Um, and of course, it's the it's not the boredom itself. It's the moment. It's the moments after the boredom, where right. where the magic happens. Um, you know, as as you as you probably know, as I think I've mentioned, I'm definitely going to come pay a visit in September, just to see yeah. how it's working. Have you spoken yeah. to? Because clearly, you know, uh, and I spoke to Peter about this, but you know, you hear all kinds of views among the students. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's the What's the greatest endorsement of this new policy you've heard from a student? And what's the most, you know, dismissive, uh, <laughs> you guys are out of your mind kind of take yeah. from, from, you must have both so, extremes. Yeah, both. And, you know, Peter is closer to that right now than I am. But I'll tell you the ones that I do know about. We've certainly, um, you know, even the day the announcement was made, there were kids who in the course of just like two hours went from being like, oh, my God, that this is the worst decision ever made. I, I, I'm i not going to stay here to like an hour or two later being like, huh, OK, this might be interesting. You know, um, we do have uh, one or two students who are thinking they they might leave the school as a result. So that is a response that to me feels um very sad, uh, and um, and I hope I still hope it doesn't happen. We don't know for sure, but the response that I heard, I actually heard from a current student's parent recently, um, and apparently she came home and told them about it, and they were talking about it, and she said, "You know what? I'm glad this is happening because I want to be using this these things less, and I just can't do it on my own." And I think a lot of kids and a lot of parents really feel that way. And this is what I mean. I mean, now I'm going to really get on my soapbox, but I feel like these kids are, they are the subjects of a, of a giant experiment that has no control. And I mean that in the scientific sense, there's no control group out there, right. That doesn't have these crazy apps and are growing up with the habits of social media in like embedded in their brains. Um, but it also has no control and that it's there's it's unfettered capitalism, right? I mean, it's like whatever Silicon Valley keeps wanting to to produce and they are just the consumers of it. And we have no idea what effect that's going to have at the, on them until it, it happens. I think we're at that point. I think we're starting to see what social effects, what habits of mind and habits of social connection are being created, what pathways are being laid down by kids growing up with these devices and with the the social media apps that come with them. Um, And that's why we saw actually more more upset and worry from our younger students than our older students, not exclusively, but generally, because the older students are just old enough, they're 18, that they haven't had this necessarily attached to their bodies since they were 10. Let me ask you this, because we know it. You know, not there. There's no single cause of anything. Yeah. Go down because you're you've got a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience detecting patterns mm. over the years. And I know you and I have talked about the power of kindness mm-hmm. and how important that is to create a kind culture. And I'm thinking about this now because it is relevant. Because as you just described it for me. Those instant, harsh, right now judgments create a less kind atmosphere. And yet I know from experience that Buxton has worked hard 
to create the habits of kindness and to inculcate that culture of kindness. So tell me, smartphones aside, tell me about kindness and how that plays in to the Buxton way of being. Well, I think you actually just said it incredibly well. It's it is it's the it's the sort of the bedrock assumption of living in community, right? Is that that in order for that to work, we all have to get to know each other. We all have to sympathize with each other. We all have to be able to kind of bend to accommodate each other. And those are kind of the the habits of those that all adds up, I think, to what kindness is, right? And um, and that is that's hard for all of us. We all, and particularly in, in American culture, which is a very individualistic place, and actually Buxton's an incredibly individualistic place. You'll you'll never meet a more diverse group of individuals and students who are very much their own people uh, than Buxton. But that's always been the tension, right? The tension that's the tension in in the democratic society is the tension between individual freedom, and then some sense of social cohesion, social order. So that is the lived experiment of Buxton. And you said smartphone aside, but I'm going to bring him back in. But I think that is the, for us, is exactly the thing we're trying to take. We feel that smartphones have brought a level of intolerance, rigidity, and have decreased sympathy and empathy. And this is part of what we're trying to preserve is people's ability to meet each other where they really are and not just react to what somebody else posted. That's what we're trying to do. That key word posted, and it won't disappear because again, they will have the ability to post, but as you pointed out, it'll be a post after a pause. Yeah. Yeah. you know, this this may or may not be relevant to this conversation. I may or may not include it, but uh, I just interviewed a woman named Loretta Ross. She's a professor now at Smith College, mm-hmm. and um, she did a wildly popular TED Talk. Oh, I know who she is. I mean, I've, I've read about yes. her. Yeah, yeah. And, she's, and, and her whole, she's writing a book now called, and it's about her whole approach, and it's the class she teaches called Calling In the Calling Out Culture. Mm-hmm. And what makes it so compelling is not simply don't cancel people, give them a chance, let's hear what's really on their mind. It's her, her personal intellectual biography, which started as really a black feminist leader who was in a, in a group. Uh, she, was, she worked for a nonprofit organization that monitored hate groups like the neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. Black feminist monitoring the Ku Klux, Ku Klux wow. Klan. And she tells the story this was, you know, many years ago in the 90s, I think, of being called in by the wives and girlfriends of KKK members in Tennessee to meet them on a mountaintop because they didn't want their children growing up with this kind of toxic atmosphere. Mm. They called her in. She told me the story of a, a, a leading neo-Nazi uh, that had called their organization because he realized that he was in deep to a place that turns out, as she says, his brain turned on and he realized he had to get out. And it's not so easy to get out of an organization like that. And she talked about how it was her job to deprogram him. So she's coming from this experience of, you know, you can talk to anybody without shaming them. And you've, there's a chance that you're going to learn something that could bring them in. So 
this whole idea of, I'm curious to know how it's being handled at Buxton right now. And then, by the way, if you want me to match you up with Loretta Ross, she would really rivet your student body, I think. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, uh, and I'll send you a copy of my conversation with her. I, I hope you'll take the time because I, she, she's absolutely captivating. But I'm curious to know, is, is you know, this, and, and even using the word cancel culture is controversial and you will be immediately stopped by you, maybe there's a better term for it. Loretta Ross calls it calling, calling out, calling mm-hmm. people out mm-hmm. again without the pause. It's not mm-hmm. that people shouldn't be held accountable. It's the immediate judgment. And so how have you as a lifelong, by the way, not only a lifelong teacher and administrator, but person in drama where improvisation is a very important skill, mm-hmm. um, how, is, how is Buxton handling this rush, this quick judgment culture. Is, is there something, have you noticed it? It sounds like you've oh. noticed it's, it's taken hold. Is yeah. there some intentional thing that you're doing to try to moderate that in some way? Yeah. I mean, I would say that more than anything else is in fact, the reason we're not, we're, we're banning smartphones more than anything else. It's that it's that instant judgmental, as I said, we get these screenshots from kids because somebody says something and somebody else immediately responds to it and calls them out on it. And then everybody piles on, you know, and it just it's then it becomes a mess and you've got sort of armed camps of people. And look, young people this age have a tendency towards (laughs) intemperance anyway. Right. That's part of being a teenager is being extreme. But Internet culture is is all adolescence all the time. Right. So. The way we handle it is the way we've always handled it, but it's become so difficult and so time consuming. So what we have to do is sit and meet with everyone and talk everyone through it. And we do actually have moderated conversations with an adult and the kids in the room. And we try to kind of work through whatever it is people are talking about and we get as far as we can. And then they go on their merry way and maybe that conversation has to happen again and maybe it has to happen again and maybe, you know. It is really time-consuming work because there is no immediate reward to backing down, backing off, being a little more subtle, letting something marinate and work on you. It's much more immediately rewarding to put something up, get a bunch of comments, have a bunch of people agreeing with you, you know, pitchforks and 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 uh, torches that's what the internet i feel like really uh encourages and we again the, the only antidote to that i would say is talking and actually getting to know people and i think we need to get rid of the screens so people can do more of that so as final question then then i really want to give you the opportunity to speak to parents out there <laughs> <laughs> who are thinking of you know maybe there's maybe there's a different place for my kid or or kids who are thinking maybe there's a different place for me however short or long you want to take i really am interested in seeing where your head's at right now in terms of you know parents who are thinking about that why should they look at buxton i would say one of the great gifts of buxton is that it is a small school with this brilliant faculty 
And the whole project of the school is to take teenagers seriously, to really take them seriously as full, interesting, complete human beings who are at this crucial and exciting time of life. I mean, I always have thought of adolescence as being this kind of sweet spot where you still have the energy and curiosity of childhood, but are starting to have the cognitive ability and self-control of adulthood. And if you can get that all going in the same direction, like amazing things can happen. And this smartphone ban, I see it as a form of respect for this age and a form of respect for these students. I think they deserve more than to just be data for Google to mine. I think they deserve more than to just be the customers of big tech. I think they deserve to be in a place where their minds are 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 front and center. It's about them. It's about what they can do. It's about what they're thinking. It's about what they're wrestling with. Um, I once heard this term about sort of uh, certain kinds of kids who have rainforest minds, you know, that there's these tendrils going out all the time, making connections, think about a lot of ADD kids, I think, have rainforest minds. And, and I feel like I want those rainforest minds to flourish and grow. And I think that smartphones, that although they give the illusion of giving you more, I think they really limit kids in what they think, how they think, how they can connect and the subtlety of mind that they're really capable of. And they're just not being allowed to practice or develop. So that's, that's how I see it. I think it's, I think it's a deeply respectful move um, because I think our world in general is way too condescending towards teenagers and has this sense of like, we got to keep them down or they're going to go out of control. Um, But I would say, let's not anesthetize them with technology. Let's let them like be fully human um, with other people and, and not constantly having their whole experience in some way mediated by influenced by, or interpreted by or performed for a screen. Brandon Sugar Haynes, uh, Director Emeritus of the Buxton School, more than a hundred beautiful acres uh, with some beautiful, but not too fancy buildings mm-hmm. on campus that are maintained by the students themselves in many ways. A mm-hmm. hundred acre haven in the Berkshires for rainforest mines. Mm. Can't beat that. <laughs> Thank you for joining me on this Wavemaker conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. As you can tell, I love talking about this. So thanks, Michael. Now, there is no way I'm leaving this story right there. If you're curious about how this Buxton leap to a smartphone-free campus is working out, I plan to visit Buxton in the fall to see for myself and report back to you. And if you'd like to be sure to get that update, as well as the wide range of conversations I do with some of the most fascinating people imaginable, including recently with Dr. Sanjay Gupta and the aforementioned Loretta Ross, author of the upcoming book, Calling In the Calling Out Culture, please subscribe to the Wavemaker Conversations newsletter on Substack or check out my website at wavemaker.me. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Conversations.